Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, everybody. I'm Emily Trenum, your host, and you're listening to WYXR 91.7 FM here in Memphis. So today, I'm pleased to welcome Tina Sullivan, who's the executive director of the Overton Parks Conservancy. Overton Park's been in the news a lot for a variety of reasons, with just some big announcements as relates to the golf course. And, but today we're, we may talk about that for a minute, but we're really going to talk about uh, a major planning process that the Conservancy just launched for Overton Park. That sort of big picture, and then drill down a little bit and talk about the planning phase that is happening right now. So, welcome, Tina. Thank you, Emily. I'm excited to be here on your show and my favorite new radio station. <laughs> it is. The station is a wonderful thing, I have to say. And not just because I'm involved with it. It's just been, it's just great. Such a, such a great addition to the Memphis cultural fabric, I think. Yes. So, um, so talk a little bit, let's just start off by talking about the planning process, because this is a process that's for the, uh, conservancy is looking at the whole park, right? I realize not all the pieces of the park are in your direct portfolio, but the geography um, is. And so talk about the planning process, kind of what the goals of it are, and then how long it's going to take to unfold. I'm sure it's probably a multi-year process, but let's, let's start with that. Okay, well, you're right to pick up. We have, it is a complex uh, park. We have five other partners managing real estate in the park. Um, really, I guess four right now, but five coming online when Rust Hall is, uh, is announced. Uh, but it's, you know, we, we want the visitor experience to be a holistic experience. When you come into the park, often people don't know that uh, there's a conservancy managing all the free public areas and that the Levitt Shell is managed by another nonprofit, the zoo is managed by another nonprofit, on and on. So the visitor doesn't necessarily think about that. And we want to make sure that when visitors are coming in, that they are having that whole park experience. Our board um, came up with this overarching principle for our guiding principle for the master planning process. And that is that this is a people driven plan. So rather than really focusing on where to put the picnic tables and the playgrounds and the walking paths, it's really more about who are our stakeholders? How can we meet the needs of the most Memphians? What do they need in the park? What do they want? Um, and how can we deliver that in a way that uh, is respectful to the park landscape? So that's our overarching goal talking to people and then knitting together that whole park experience. We've been talking about this for a while. <laughs> we've, we've had a lot going on in the park, um, even though you may not have heard the conservancy in the news, in the headlines over the last couple of years, there has been a lot going on. So we started engaging park visitors on this master planning process more than a year ago. And then with the announcement of the college closing, the college park closing, and the announcement of Brooks Museum moving, we sort of hit the pause button to let some things catch up. Um, but then recently we decided we really needed to begin planning in earnest for the southeast corner of the park, which the mayor has committed to returning back to public parkland. So we need to plan for that. So that's why we carved out zones and began planning for zone one. So I was looking at the website, and it looks like the planning process has a couple of overarching principles, one being equity. Touch on those for a minute, if you would. Sure. We, we know that um, the, the park demographics are pretty closely reflective of Memphis demographics. The Conservancy's 
communications reflect that we're not necessarily hearing from all of those park visitors on a day-to-day basis. Um, you're, you may be getting our emails, Emily, but there are a lot of Memphians who are not dialed into our communications channels. So when we do simple things to engage park visitors like surveys, we're, we're missing a large swath of the population. So we needed to be very intentional to make sure that we're adjusting for that and that we're hearing from a, a variety of voices. So for the, um, when we began planning in earnest for zone one, we initiated a partnership with the Center for Transforming Communities. And we did that because um, we know that they are um, they're located in Binghamton, which was our immediate neighbor and an area where we felt we were definitely not getting enough representation in our business. And then um, the Center for Transforming Communities also works in neighborhoods around the city and neighborhoods that we felt we, would, we needed help uh, getting into and hearing from. So as we started developing the engagement plan with, with CTC, they uh, um, suggested that we focus on the youth voices. And in fact, they have a program called the Youth Voice. And so it was just a beautiful, easy alignment. And the idea was to really was to bring some youth participants into the park and engage very deeply where we may be hitting broadly with surveys and other engagement efforts with this youth cohort. These youth cohorts, we've been going very deep um, and and discussing things that go well beyond just, again, where to put benches and playgrounds, discussing things like ownership, citizen ownership, and um, how big civic projects are developed and how big decisions are made and how they can be plugged into that decision-making process. So it's been a really um, gratifying experience uh, to, to kind of learn from from youth. It's just not, this not a demographic that's normally engaged in big civic projects. So um, we hope that we're doing something unique and meaningful that will be a model for the future planning. Yeah, I love this. I didn't know, I knew about the partnership with Center for Transforming Communities. And of course they do great work in this year. I didn't know about the youth engagement per se. Is that, um, is that, something to the extent you've done engagement already is that related to the whole plan or is it zone one focused it's uh the current questions and the the problems we've asked them to help us solve are mostly related to zone one right now but we will continue the conversation so when we get ready to plan for the next phases which hopefully will be right after the first of the year uh, we're going to bring them right along with us. And in fact, we're committed to extending this relationship beyond the planning process. One of the ideas that we hit on early on was that, okay, once once we start discussing ownership and decision-making in big civic projects, then there's this, you know, the very next conversation should be about accountability. How do we ensure that those, those decisions and those desires are carried out? So we talk about governance and how can we bring those youth into the governance of the conservancy you know, maybe there is a seat on the board or an advisory advisory group that, um, you know, that's meeting regularly and holding us accountable to what we say we want to do. Well, it makes so much sense to bring in youth as a voice on par- in park planning and park management. So before I, I want to talk about zone one next, but before we do that, what's the timeline for the for the whole planning process? Is that over two years or what do you envision for that? I get in trouble every time I try to predict uh, how long a major project is going to take. I've never actually done a master plan before, but our planning team feels pretty strongly that we will wrap up the zone one uh, piece of it and have some good results to report out and to you know get your feedback on early next year, like as early as January. And we de- de- we hope to begin planning for the remaining zones around the same time. So move right into the next phase and hopefully wrap that up by the end of the year, by the end of 2021. Okay. So I feel like I'm interrogating you, so I'm sorry about putting you on the spot, but also, but but sort of related to that, um, are you going to, I'm sure, you know, the implementation, there's going to be odd dollars needed for that probably some hopefully some contribution from the city in terms of capital dollars i'm sure you'll have to do private fundraising as well um are you just going to plan 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 and then sort of uh start that phase or when zone one is done if there's projects identified are you going to start fundraising for those and do both at the same time we're always fundraising i mean it's the nature of the nonprofit world 
And with with some uh, concepts to get excited about around Zone One, we will most we will begin fundraising right away. So we'll have some master planning happening and some you know capital campaign happening all at the same time. <laughs> Next year is going to be a huge year. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm glad I got in your schedule now. <laughs> so um, so so let's talk about Zone One. So uh, Zone One is the um, you know, the, the eastern portion of the park, but talk about the different um, the different sections of that um, and and what, what you're trying to accomplish with this planning phase. Sure. Uh, before I, I talk about the future, I want to talk about the past and where we are today. So in the past, the park, before the Conservancy started managing the park, it felt like two separate parks. You had the East Parkway picnic area and pavilion and playground, and you had the west side of the park. And then you had the old forest in the middle, which felt like an impenetrable, scary place that people didn't feel comfortable going. Um, You had a reputation for criminal activity and people were just intimidated. There were people who would visit one side of the park and not know that the other side of the park was the same park. And so with the, um, and, and that East Parkway side was an island unto itself, very difficult to get into unless you were driving. So a um, couple of things we did early on, we, uh, with your help, Emily, uh, connected the park to the Hamp Line uh, with the, inter- the new entrance that goes now under the bike gate and connect- created a connector trail so that the, the park had some flow. We also started focusing on the old forest and we started removing invasives and opening up sight lines and we replaced the vehicle barrier gates with these works of public art that were intentionally designed to get people curious about going beyond that boundary to cross that threshold and go into the park. And what we hoped would happen has now happened, which is that there's flow through the park. There are people visiting one side to the other and the park feels like a, a one continuous park that you can enjoy, you can walk around and enjoy all the parts of. So how do you, how do you know that, how do you know there's more flow? Or do you have counters on the ground and your or um, observation cameras that you actually are able to see that? Well yes. So first it was just anecdotally, uh, there were very few people using the trails. You could just we were out there every single day. So I could just tell you there were not a lot of people using the trails and the park still felt very segregated and bisected by the forest. And then we just started to see movement. People were coming in. More and more people were using the trails between the two sides of the park and and we could just see them walking from one side to the other. But then uh, with the help of the Plow Foundation and International Paper last year, we installed visitor counters and we started collecting data in January. And we're, we're over a million people now, I'm pretty sure, uh, that oh, have wow. clicked through on any of those various counters. in just This, in this year? Yeah. Yeah. That's and amazing. That, that's with the Brooks Museum and the zoo being closed, the College of Art closing down, the Levitt Shell not having concerts, and the park roads being closed for six weeks. Playgrounds were closed, bathrooms were closed, dog parks closed. That's with everything shut down, we were a million. Well, because no one had anything else to do. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> go but it gives, believe me. gives you an idea of the potential for massive uh, satisfaction of uh, for Memphis citizens. But we did put visitor counters at each of those um, forest entrances. So we can tell you where people are coming, you know, that people are coming in and coming through. And so we know, uh, I don't have a comparison data from before we did that work, installed the new trail and and cleaned up sight lines. But I can tell you anecdotally that we have more visitors now. And now I can tell you that the, the visitor counter that gets the most clicks in the entire park is the visitor counter into the old forest that's close to the dog park, that sculpture that Tyler French designed. Really? Yeah. That's so interesting. So people are coming in from all directions and they end up passing through that portal. Like the majority of park visitors end up passing through that portal. That feels like the heart of the park. And it's, it's you know, it's interesting to to think, you know, is that, that that is the main the main entrance into the forest. I would have argued that point before we had the data. But now it's well, when you think about it. That's a nexus for the dog park, the playground, the old forest. And of course, the that's not far from other things so so that now that you're saying that it makes sense once things started to flow more that that would be 
a, a crucial intersection point, but that's extremely right. interesting. Okay, so you've done a lot to connect the pieces. So what now? So now we have to continue that uh, mindset that the east side of the park is connected to everything else and that that new 13-acre parcel that we're adding to the portfolio is going to be seamlessly connected to everything else and that that rather than having distinct little zones, we're going to have flow and we're going to have pieces that are connected to each other. So you know, right now, if you were to go onto that site, it's, you know, surrounded by old forest um, and then bounded on one side by the picnic area and the fire station. But there's a big chain link fence around it. It feels cut off. Uh, so you have to imagine the fence coming down and some connector trails that really bring you in and out of the site from the west. And then, you know, maybe a, a little bit more of a visible entrance on the east com- coming off of East Parkway. Um, so that's obviously the big opportunity, and we can talk at length about what will happen in that corner. Um, but for the remainder of Zone One, that is that is it. So <laughs> when um, park experts come to Memphis, so the City Parks Alliance had a board meeting in Memphis last year, I believe. And when park planners think about how to how to do a master plan for a park, one of the things they talk about is like, how do we activate? How do we get people engaged and active in the park? How do we bring them in? We don't have that problem. Uh, Overton Park, as I said, is already thriving, but the East Parkway picnic area is just the perfect example of a thriving park community. People come back year after year to hold their events in that historic pavilion. They have their parties, their uh, you know family reunions. Those big concrete picnic tables are filled up in warm weather every weekend, all weekend. So there's not a lot that we need to do to intervene in that area. We just need to refine it, make it a little easier to navigate and, and refurbish some of the outdated assets. For, you know, make sure that pavilion is restored. Really just building on the success there and, and how do we translate that into that Southeast corner. And what about that playground? A playground, I mean, always seemed nice until you built the new one and the old one just seemed kind of sad. <laughs> I know. It's in good physical condition, but it is a little dated. You know, maybe there's uh, maybe there's somewhere that some another place that needs a, a playground that would be an upgrade uh, for another place. But I think that uh, there is definitely an opportunity to do something more interesting there because the Rainbow Lake Playground, as soon as we opened it, it immediately started drawing, you know, crowds from everywhere. We have um, our, our safety auditor estimated over 100,000 kids visit the Rainbow Lake Playground every year. So let's do something, you know, equally awesome on the east side of the park and um, create, you know, create, make that integrated into the picnic area and make sure that, yeah, it's another great place to go. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm talking to Tina Sullivan from the Overton Park Conservancy about a master planning process that the park is undertaking right now. So, so let's talk about that property on the corner. Um, it's very exciting that, um, that that's going to be part of the park. doesn't seem like that's an appropriate use for it at this point. So what are some of the, there's been a million ideas floated. I know that you did some community engagement. You did a survey. You've, you've done this youth engagement. Um, I'm sure not everything's on the table. Like what are some possible uses that actually you could see going in there? Sure. Um, We have had some really interesting responses, and I love, love, love reading the responses from the survey. I mean, it's just, that's just where ideas, ideas come up from the public, people who are using the space and people who have traveled elsewhere and bring back their ideas to Memphis. But um, there are some overarching sort of consistent themes that have emerged in our engagement, um, our engagement through the broad survey reach, but also through our engagement with the um, CTC youth. And that is um, that the park's identity is, is very strong. And it, we've got a strong identity around our natural areas. The old forest is an oasis in an urban area and people want they want to experience that when they come to the park. They want to celebrate that. But we also have an identity as an arts and cultural hub. You know, we've got music and art. Uh, we've had international festivals. And so, you know, we, we're thinking about that 13-acre parcel as where this identity really gets crystallized, where it starts to 
um, all come together and, and flow out and we become a place in the city that is so unique because where else can you mash up this incredibly beautiful natural area with this rich arts culture um, and, and in the middle of, in the heart of the city, you rarely get an opportunity to reclaim 13 acres and then to do something really excited with it. So, you know, people want, want us to honor that natural beauty. Um, they want us to honor the existing culture. They want us to honor the history of the park. We have this great George Kessler design. So let's just, you know, build on those George Kessler aesthetics, which are to honor the natural beauty. And then um, people love, uh, one of the things they love about the culture of Overton Park, and this is a really gratifying thing to hear, it's that when people come to the park, they feel like they're part of a community, even when they're meeting strangers. There is a sense there that you're safe and that people are friendly and inviting and welcoming. And so how can we, uh, how can we enhance that? Do we create, how can we create more seating areas? What amenities, what amenities can we add that would attract people from all different backgrounds and make and you know get them to mingle together instead of creating uh, amenities where you go with your family and your private little space and somebody else comes with their club it's mixing everybody up so what you're describing sounds like a gathering place of some kind a plaza or i mean i'm trying i'm thinking it through in my mind what this could look like uh, but but a place where you want people to gather. Right, right. We we definitely want to, uh, I, I think that the park generally needs more uh, casual seating areas where you can, you know, just, I'm thinking about Bryant Park in New York City where you can pick up your chairs and move them around and create little seating clusters. The picnic tables on the greensward get moved all over the place um, because people like to gather. So, um, so definitely a gathering place. Like, what do we do? There's a works progress administration era building over there. The conservancy doesn't have any indoor uh, space right now. If you wanted to get together in the winter, um, you're kind of out of luck. So, you know, having, having a rental space, but that, you know, people want more food service. So I don't know if that means a concession or if that's, a, uh, there's been a demand for food truck court. Um, so someplace that is a destination. So, um, you know, can we can we do something over there that complements the arts that are on the west side of the park and doesn't compete, um, but draws people in, gives them what they want? Well, plus, I know you're in the, you know, revenue generating business and you don't have some kind of an indoor facility for people to have events, which is, I mean, a lot of, you know, parks and cultural organizations have that as a revenue source. So you've got pretty places to do weddings outdoors, but nothing indoors for sure. Yeah, the park is free 365 days a year. It doesn't cost you anything to come to Overton Park. And we only have two pavilions right now and a few other areas that we can rent out for revenue. We lost all of that in 2020 because of the pandemic. We have done no rentals. Um, and quite frankly, it was not a significant enough portion of our budget that we're going to fold because of it. So losing that revenue, while it, it definitely hurt, and we're going to have to figure out how to how to adjust and make up that funding, uh, it wasn't enough to sink the whole ship. So, you know, we need a broader and more diverse uh, array of funding sources. And so adding more earned revenue will be important. And some of that may be partnerships, like you mentioned, coffee shop, you know, I'm, I'm, I know for certain that, you know, a local coffee shop owner would love to be part of that. So yeah, there could be a, there could be a lease arrangement um, or it could be something that we're operating. Who knows? Are there going to be any, I guess there won't be any new auto entrances, but better circulation. Um, Cause you're right. You drive in East Parkway. If you are in a car, you don't always know where to turn in exactly to, to, to figure out where you want to go. Right. So uh, common, another common thread that came up in the uh, public conversations were um, the, the ideas around improving access for bikes, pedestrians, people in wheelchairs, and a strong desire not to design too much for cars. So we know we need to improve the contact between cars and people, cars and park users. Um, and we know we need to improve bike and pedestrian access into the park and throughout the park. But one thing I've also learned, and I, I um, this really, I think, hit home again 
during the pandemic when the park's roads were closed to vehicular traffic. When that happens, when we don't have adequate parking in the park, the only people who are able to use it are the people who live within a quarter mile or or, are able-bodied enough to get there uh, through other means because we're not there yet with transit. So parking becomes an equity issue. And we have to at least have enough parking that we're able to serve people from outside of the immediate vicinity. So, you know, if I win the fundraising lottery, I want to find a really elegant solution to provide at least enough parking and doing it, do it in a way that is less impactful than straight asphalt. I agree, Tina. I mean, I'm a, as you know, been a, you know, I'm anti-car, you know, pro bike and pedestrian infrastructure for sure, but it is an equity issue. I mean, I utilized the park a lot when the roads were closed and it was great, but you don't want to serve you don't want to serve the people that just live right around there, even including Binghampton. I mean, we want to serve, it's a regional magnet and people come from all over, especially to use those, those pavilions. I mean, the family reunions and all of those, those people are coming by car and they are welcome now and need to be continue to feel welcome. And that's some of that is accommodating motor vehicles. (laughs) Yep, and, and not just mo- not just motor vehicles, but trucks with really big grills <laughs> on a trailer <laughs> behind them. That may be one intervention in that East Parkway thriving East Parkway picnic area is creating a space like drive base for your backup trailer grill configuration. <laughs> but you know, um, we those family reunions are a big business, Emily. We draw in from every single zip code in Memphis. We've I'm done sure. And, you know, they're, they're, that's a traveling industry. There are people who just have destination family reunions. And I found out, and this is wonderful, uh, people will start calling around, okay, where are we going to do our family reunion this year? And they'll call hotels in Memphis, and the hotels will tell them to call us. Go check out that pavilion at Overton Park. Wow. So we're getting business from all over the country. Yeah, I'm not surprised. It's, uh, I go by there all the time. And um, in the nice weather, I mean, the pavilion and then those triple picnic tables. Um, so for sure. Well, so Tina, we're, we're, um, you know, we're running out of time, but the, um, you know, the second half of the show, I have like sort of a, usually a regular commentator on kind of reflecting on my interview and then talking about some other things. And so the, um, the commentator that's going to come after this is going to be, um, Holly Fulkerson from Memphis Heritage. And we're going to talk a little bit about other historic parks. Um, And so I just, my last question is this, like how you mentioned this, um, but Overton Park is historic. And how do you, maybe in that zone, there's not that much, not that many historic assets. So there's probably some that I don't know about. But how do you sort of balance that? Because that's very important to people in the community. Yeah, it's an, and it's a fascinating aspect that not every park gets to celebrate. So we have this historic design, the fact that the park is, you know, 119 years old and was designed by George Kessler. That's significant. That's nationally significant. And then the fact that we're, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision that saved the park from I-40, that's a nationally significant story. And people are interested. In, and I was actually surprised at the level of interest, even the youth. Uh, cohorts that we brought in from CTC uh, wanted to know more about the park history and wanted there to be a place to learn about the park history. They're so so more advanced than I was when I was a teenager. I could have cared less. So I was so excited to see that. So some of that is just in our organizational culture. How are we lifting up and celebrating the good parts of the history and how are we acknowledging and confronting the less glamorous parts of the park history um, and and learning from that and weaving that into our own cultural identity. Um, so some of that will be in the built environment, some of that will be in programming, and some of that will be in our messaging going forward. Um, so I, I can't wait to hear your, your next commentary on that. <laughs> well, Tina, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a great discussion. I want you to come back when you're in some of the other phases and we can talk more about those as well. 
Thank you, Emily. So excited to talk to you. I appreciate it. So I've been talking to Tina Sullivan, who's executive director of the Overton Park Conservancy. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on um, WYXR 91.7 FM. And after the break, Holly Jansen Fulkerson from Memphis Heritage is going to be on. And as I said, we're going to be talking a little more about over the history of Overton Park and then also some other historic parks in Memphis. Um, and so stay tuned for that. And thanks again. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at WYXR.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. So welcome everyone to the second half of this week's Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Today I'm joined with Holly Jansen Fulgerson, who's one of our regular commentators. And I invited Holly to come on because the first half of the show, I had Tina Sullivan, executive director from Overton Park Conservancy, talking about the master planning they're doing for that park and uh, and specifically what's happening in the first phase of that. But Overton Park has so such rich history and we have a number of other historic parks. We can't even begin to, as usual, when you come on, Holly, I feel like it's just um, we're scratching the surface of all of the all of the discussion points, even within this sort of small area. So welcome back to the show. Great. Thanks for having me, Emily. So, Holly, before we dive in and talk about Overton and some of the other parks, um, just remind us where sort of parks fit in. Uh, when, when you were the very first time you were on, we talked about how parks are actually we talked about how historic preservation is a lot more than just old buildings. And so just talk about that for a minute and how parks kind of fit into that and why historic parks are important when we think about, you know, our historic environment. Yeah, historic parks and just cultural landscapes in general are are such a part of Memphis and any city, really. Um, I've lived in a few cities, and Memphis probably has the most parks out of all the places I've lived. And the just the fact that they are, are places that belong to all of us, and we can gather there. Uh, a lot of people have memories at parks, um, visiting them as children. And, you know, it's people just have an emotional attachment to them. And looking at our our current situation with the pandemic, I, I probably a lot of people uh, like myself are are rediscovering and, and discovering new parks. Uh, you know, it's it's one of the few safe activities that we can do, and, um, and perhaps park visitation is is more important and bigger than it has been in a long time. Well, I live very close to Overton Park within walking distance, and you know, I've always gone there at a regular basis and utilized it, just utilized it and appreciated it so much more, especially in the beginning of the pandemic. In fact, when Tina was on, I said, I feel awful telling you this, but because it's not good for the park, but I was so happy when there was no cars because it was just so peaceful and private. And like I said, obviously, a lot of people use the park, a lot of people who who have cars, and that's how they get there. It's very selfish, but it was just, um, I used the park so much. And I think a lot of people did. And and it was the parking situation didn't deter anyone. And it was so nice to just walk down the middle of the street. And and I've never seen so many people at Overton Park than, than in the, you know, the nice weather parts of the pandemic. So Holly, let me... Uh, ask you something, and I didn't give you a heads up that I was going to ask you this, and you may not know the answer, but thinking back to my discussion with Tina, you know, um, for for buildings that are on the National Register of Historic Places, uh, if they're 
renovated or rehabbed and there's any government money involved, there are standards that the U.S. Department of Interior imposes. For example, they have to approve the windows. And, you know, because you have to retain a certain percentage of original architectural features. and, And that's always kind of a, you know, sort of a decision whether people want to use government money for that because of course that's a it's more expensive but but does that same protection extend to parks do you know like for example if tina got um community development block grant funds to implement some changes to overton park not an a scenario that certainly could happen does the department of interior have standards for parks or for historic elements in parks? Do you know? I don't know. And that is a really good question. I haven't considered that before. And I, I will look up the answer and I will report back uh, to you because that, that is a really, really good question. Um, and as as you know, we know Overton Park has changed many times over the years um, and not just the buildings themselves. Um, I and I can't think of when it was added to the National Register, but um, uh, certainly changes have, have happened since that time. Um, so that's a really good point. So, so you know, we Overton Park is not our oldest park in Memphis, um, and it's we have a number of historic parks, but I think it's our m- most well-known. Uh, and why is that? What's sort of special and historic about Overton Park that sort of elevates it to the top in terms of when we think about historic parks here? Well, for sh- I think for sure the location has has a lot to do with that, just being right in the middle of our city, you know, right in Midtown, easy access. Um, and it, that, that sh- I'm sure has a lot to do with it. And, and also it's just has so many amenities and, and it's so big and, you know, beautifully designed. Uh, there's numerous walking trails and, and gathering spots and people have been using it since you know, since it was founded in, in the early 1900s. So, and um, I didn't realize, of course, I was doing some some research to prepare for my discussion with you and also with Tina. And I knew that, you know, George Kessler, who was a very well-known um, urban planner, landscape architect, designed the park. But I didn't know that he had designed, that he actually was commissioned by what was then the, the park commission to do a whole park system and that he designed Overton park and a number of other parks. Yeah, he did. And uh, it, like you said, the, the parkway system, and he was considered one of the, the, the founding fathers of urban planning and his, his work can be found all over the country um, and even internationally too. So the I think pe- a lot of people know that the Parkway system was uh, designed at the t- the same time as Overton Park, part of a whole system with North Parkway, East Parkway, South Parkway, which at the time were really the boundaries of the city, and all that was planned and implemented around the same time. But there was another very nice historic park designed at the same time that people don't go to as much. And you had mentioned you had been going there or had gone there because of the pandemic. So what is that? Yeah, it's it's a park that not a lot of people know about. And and maybe it has a little bit to do with the name because, you know, Riverside Park, you think of maybe Tom Lee Park or, you know, or Martyrs Park on the, the more heavily trafficked part of the river. But uh, Martin Luther King Riverside Park is, is south of all of that. And it's, uh, you know, at the intersection of Riverside Drive and, and South Parkway. And to be very honest with you, I've lived here for almost five years and I didn't even know about it until the the pandemic started. And then, you know, you're looking for things to do. And, um, you know, I've been there with my husband and my dog uh, several times and it's a beautiful park and it's very well maintained. And there's not a lot of people there. It's kind of a a hidden gem. Well, I would, if there are listeners who haven't, um, haven't been to MLK Riverside Park, I'd really encourage it because has a lot of very similar features to Overton and it was built around the same time. Of course, it's right on the river. 
you know, it's got playgrounds, it's got ball fields, got picnic tables, and just a beautiful terrain. It's a little bit tucked away. Um, I think as part of the overall um, riverfront uh, rethinking, uh, that's, that's, that's right now it's very focused on Tom Lee, but eventually is going to, I think, look at that whole stretch of the river. I think at some point there'll be more, um, illumination of it, probably some renovations and, and things to increase its visibility and its accessibility, but it's really a gem in our city. So if anyone's listening that hasn't been there, uh, get on down there. It's a great time since we're getting ready to be locked down again more, it's a great time on a day that's not too cold to explore. If you like Overton Park, then MLK Riverside is really worth checking out. Absolutely. So, um, so Tina and I didn't talk about this in her interview, um, but we were chatting later about some of the, um, you know, the history of the park And she told me, of course, I shouldn't have been surprised by this, but she told me that, um, you know, that the park was segregated for many years. You know, we just think of, I think everyone's seen those pictures, those pictures of the zoo when the zoo, you know, was segregated and not everyone could go every day. And, and, and you just don't think about, um, you just don't think about parks in that way because the boundaries are more porous. But, uh, but Tina told me that the, you know, the park was, or portions of the park were very segregated and that ultimately that led to another case before the Supreme court. Did you know about that? I did. Um, actually I, I learned about it, uh, during our annual preservation series uh, that we did this past year. Um, And we had the author of the newest book about Overton Park, Brooks Lamb, um, that gave a a very interesting talk about the history of Overton Park. Um, And just a a quick plug for his book. um, It's a very interesting book. Uh, He did oral histories of all different people involved in the park over the years. And so it's really those firsthand accounts. that are, but bring a lot to the table. And I, I digress, but yes, I, I did know about the, the segregation issues because of that. Well, I'll put a link to something about the book in the show notes. So people who are interested want to check out more about that. So just if people don't know, um, many of the parks amenities were whites only on certain days. Sounds familiar. And but a group of students from Lemoyne Owen College protested that, and they staged a kneel-in during an Easter service at the Levitt Shell, and went to the Brooks Museum on one of the days. Then it wasn't their designated day of the week. They got arrested, and the case ended up at the Supreme Court. Um, and they were successful. It was the Watson versus the City of Memphis, and uh, they were successful. Uh, and it was 1963. So people, of course, the citizens to preserve Overton Park case is so well known. People, you know, proudly talk about how the community took it to the Supreme Court. Well, this also was the community <laughs> taking a yeah. case to the Supreme Court, um, right. arguably just as important and prevailing. And I'm just, I'm em- kind of embarrassed that I did not know that part of our history uh, and of Overton Park's history. Yeah, but it's it is it's surprising, like you said, to to a lot of people when because you think of the boundaries of a park as being porous and it's open air and you're not enclosed in a space. Um, but there's other parks uh, that were kind of you know came out of segregation and two very well well-known parks um church park robert church park uh down on beale street and that park has a, a very interesting history of course it was built by the billion millionaire um robert church and it was this was a park that i'm i'm very familiar with i i wish that it 
a lot of its features could still exist, but it had an auditorium. Um, Teddy Roosevelt came and spoke there one time. Um, you know, it, the auditorium could hold 10,000, 2000 people. Sorry. Uh, there, you know, the grounds roamed with peacocks. There, there was, um, you know, flowers and tropical trees and a, a swimming pool. Um, it was just amazing. And and then over the years, uh, it you know kind of fell into to disrepair, and a lot of those original features are gone. But they they have built, and and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with um, the uh, the memorial or kind of entrance at the the um right on Beale Street and it's it's meant to mimic the auditorium um, or it was inspired by the auditorium that was torn down but for many years that was the only park for for black people in our city uh, and then of course there's um, Douglas Park which was the the first park that the city built for African Americans and and that park still has a, a very rich history um, and is a gathering place for a lot of people in the Douglas neighborhood well that's also a very nice neighborhood park I was there recently even during the pandemic for a community event and it's really lovely it doesn't have a lot of amenities but it's very pretty you can picnic there there's you know grassy areas there's a playground and um and it's really right in the middle of the neighborhood so it's kind of accessible on all sides so another another important historic park well one of the interesting things about church park and you touched on this was that, um, you know, it was privately developed and privately owned for a long time because the government did not provide, um, you know, recreational amenities for African-Americans. And now we sort of think of, you know, the privatization of parks as, um, you know, something that is bad. Um, And, but of course, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures and it was needed at the time. For sure. So um, on a related subject, Holly, let's talk for a minute about the, I mean, I feel like we're, um, you know, we've been talking about segregation in parks and um, of course Memphis, like a lot of communities has been, um, you know, reckoning with race. And part of that is, has led to the, renaming of some of our parks and it got me kind of reflecting on um you know that parks change and evolve and to reflect changing needs of the community and history and so talk a little bit about that yeah, for sure. So, of course, we know about uh, the the recent name changes at parks, but um, this has been going on for a long time. Uh, like you said, parks change over time. So what uh, the park that we know today as Chickasaw Heritage Park, which is right across um, the street from the Marine Hospital, uh, it, it was originally founded as a private park um, back in the 19th century, and it was called Jackson Mounds. And I think it might have had another name. Uh, but then in the early 1900s, the, the city took over the park and the Parks Commission uh, named it DeSoto Park because it that's the, the area where it's some people believe that DeSoto, Hernando DeSoto might have first set eyes on the Mississippi River. Um, but even even though its official name was DeSoto Park, a lot of locals called it Chickasaw Park because of the Chickasaw Mounds there. And then in 1995, the park name officially changed to Chickasaw Heritage Park to reflect the the first peoples that used that space. Um, So uh, there's park name changes are are not a new thing at all. And another park that we talked about earlier, uh, Riverside Park, um, and now it's known as Martin Luther King Jr. Riverside Park. That name change happened in 1968, obviously, to to honor uh, Martin Luther King. But um, there are several recent name changes that are very controversial. And I I don't know, um, I've not done the research, but I wonder if those older name changes received the same amount of attention and were, I wonder if they were as controversial as, as the name, recent name changes. That would be interesting to find out. It would be interesting because, um, yeah, it's a, it's a recognition that, um, I mean, I think the, 
the DeSoto Chicksaw is a great analogy because that was probably changed as a recognition that that, you know, that DeSoto wasn't the best name for that park um, and wasn't reflective of the park's history. And in the case of, you know, Forrest Confederate and Jefferson Davis, um, those are historical names, but, you know, the community or a lot of in the community, you know, acknowledge that those were no longer, those were no longer names that we wanted for our, some of our most prominent public parks. Exactly. And, and, you know, in the case of um, Jefferson Davis Park, which is also, you know, known as Confederate Park, um, the, the new name of it is is Fourth Bluff Park, and and I think that name change was again meant to reflect the the earliest uses of that land. And you know, there's a lot of uh, history at the Fourth Bluff that happened, you know, many many years before it was named Jefferson Park and Confederate Park. Well, and I talked to Tina a little bit about. Um you know, how she was trying to balance sort of the history and the, and the need to, you know, have upgrades and new amenities. And I, th- and I, th- I think that's a challenge. Um, you certainly in the case of the um, Watson versus city of Memphis, I mean, that's history you wouldn't know uh, if you went to the park. That's in a very important story to tell. Um, so, you know, weaving that into when parks are planned, park changes are planned. It's um, it is it's it's an evolving parks are. I guess what I'm what we're going is you know parks aren't static; they evolve in a number of ways. And if you can incorporate, you know, celebrate the history or reflect on it, um, it's a positive thing. But things can and have to change. They they absolutely do. And and at Overton Park, as as Tina talked about, a lot of things are changing. Um and I I think it's it's so neat that there's so many different elements at Overton Park. Um and and perhaps maybe this is a great opportunity to have some, you know new new public art new new memorials to reflect some of of these histories that a lot of people don't know about i love that idea i'll pass it on <laughs> yeah <laughs> well you know with with the with the metal museum uh moving into rust hall um this this could be a great time to showcase uh some really cool uh works of art i agree well Thanks, Holly, for coming on. I've been talking to Holly Jansen Fulkerson, Executive Director from Memphis Heritage. We've been talking about historic parks. And so thank you, Holly. Thanks so much for having me, Emily. And I will talk to you next time. Great. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR. 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy. (music) 